Thank you for tuning in to The Brief. We really value your insights and we'd love to hear what you think of the show. To be in with a chance to win a six-month subscription to Open Cities Pocket London, a printed series of guided walks and cycles around the city, please fill in the two-minute listener survey. Link in the show notes. The Brief is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. Fresh divisions emerge in the debate over Greenbelt development. Big oil bankrolls a major British Museum overhaul, public buildings at risk amid a wave of local authority bankruptcies, and the record-breaking theft of Banksy's newest Peckham artwork. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's big stories in architecture, planning and housing news. Welcome to The Brief from Open City. My guest this week is Des Fitzgerald. Des is a professor of medical humanities and social sciences and author of the new book, The City of Today is a Dying Thing. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Merlin. My pleasure. The debate over Greenbelt development has once again divided the Conservatives following the recent rolling out of revisions to the government's National Planning Policy Framework, that's the NPPF, by Housing Secretary Michael Gove. Critics slammed Gove at the close of 2023 for, quote, capitulating to NIMBY Tory MPs, arguing that the MPPF changes, which free local authorities from an obligation to redraw Greenbelt boundaries to meet their housing targets, will ultimately lead to fewer houses being built. This comes as the government faces fresh accusations of abandoning or watering down its national 300,000 homes a year target and also local housing targets amid disagreement in the Conservative Party. Industry tracker Glenigan found permissions for new homes hit a record new low with just 2,778 applications given approval in the 12 months to September. That figure is almost 20% fewer than the same period last year and the lowest level since the House Builders Federation started reporting the figures back in 2006. This was reported by The Times. Nicholas Boyce-Smith, a former Conservative advisor and chair of the government's Office for Place scheme, is one of several high-profile critics of Gove's plans. He remarked that not all parts of the Greenbelt should be, quote, preserved in aspect forever, end quote. He also argued that land of, quote, low or no agricultural or amenity quality, end quote, should not be protected forever. He went on to say, quote, we have not built enough over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 or 30 years. As a society, we have fallen out of love with the future and we have, under both political parties, failed to build enough homes. Clearly, we need to look at the quality of land within green belts and need to think which of this should be preserved, end quote. The Guardian reported that Boy Smith, who helped set up the urbanism think tank Create Streets back in 2012, proposed that community-led design codes would provide a clear template for house building and ultimately lead to higher public satisfaction with new developments. Okay, so Des, what is the Greenbelt? Some listeners might want details on that. Why is it that Greenbelt development is causing so much heated debate right now? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question, Merlin. I mean, so the Greenbelt is, we, we say the Greenbelt, but we're referring to multiple things, actually. So what we mean by the Greenbelt is um, uh, uh, land, mostly agricultural land, that encircles urban areas in the UK, um, on which most development is, is not permitted, basically. 
So the idea has been around for a long time. It's often associated with Octavia Hill, the end of the 19th century. But really, we should think of the Greenbelt as kind of part of the post-war settlement, right? So really an attempt to stop what was called urban sprawl in the 1940s, but really, I would say, to constrain urban growth, to constrain non-urban space between cities and towns in the UK. I mean, for me, understanding the Green Belt means remembering that, you know, let's say the Metropolitan Green Belt, which is the one around London, comes into existence at exactly the same moment as the new towns, right? So in 1946, 1947. And I think it's helpful to think of the new towns and the Green Belt as a sort of yin and yang, right? In the, in the middle of the 20th century, one preserving a kind of older, more rural, more traditional form of social life. And then the other, it's something that's much more both architecturally and socially ambitious, even a bit daring, right? So I, I, many will disagree, but I tend to think of the Metropolitan Greenbelt as a kind of bastion of small C conservatism with London on one side and the new towns on the other. And the other thing it's worth saying is we should probably think of the Greenbelt as an attempt to resolve post-war social tensions, right? To resolve a series of social tensions through the 20th century, which are still with us, which is why this debate is bubbling up again today. So to, you know, to build social housing, but to do it while constraining the growth of London. And I think critically, while essentially reserving incredibly large amounts of space and high land values for essentially middle-class homeowners at the edges of cities. That, that's essentially what the Greenbelt is doing. So for me, the really important thing is to get away from the idea that the Greenbelt somehow preserves nature. Right? That is not what it's about. What the Greenbelt preserves is space and land value for one band of mostly middle-class voters. Yeah, it does rather strike me that... Um... Uh, that there's a kind of romantic idea of the green belt, and obviously, when you hear someone say "let's build on the green belt," that one's natural response is that sounds horrific, you know this this green belt. But very few people actually, it appears, get to enjoy uh, the green belt in, in that kind of utopian, idyllic image that conjures up into your head. So right now, people are seriously like uh, architects and and big thinkers and other people are coming up with um, proposals to say, "Look, we need to build in these places," right? Um, and that is they're being met with a lot of uh, disquiet so why is it so so loaded a space now for those people putting forward those arguments yeah i think that the question of why it's so loaded i think is really really interesting because i think what you put your finger on there is there's something like there's something politically important going on and there's something philosophically important going on actually i think in in in, in arguments around the green belt and actually this is kind of where this is part of the this philosophical history is part of what i'm what i'm trying to think through in the book so the, what i think the green belt does is it kind of stages and i would say dramatizes the distinction between town and country in the uk that's it's, it's the place where that division and debate gets worked out and you know what's at stake there are you know it's non-trivial stuff. It's two very different sets of material interests, right? Two very different ideas of what the future of urbanization and development in general in the country looks like. Um, so it's high-stakes stuff, and it, it, it shouldn't shock us that it is it is potent um, and, and triggers a lot of things for people. But you know, I, one of the things that I, I, this is hard to get across, but I think the Green Belt, we should also think of it as a kind of a philosophical claim, right? It's an argument for how we should think about space. And the claim it makes is that there is a hard categorical division between a thing called a town and a thing called a country. Right? So these are two very different sorts of things, and we can literally put a boundary in space, setting them apart from one another. So for me, the Green Belt isn't like it, it doesn't, as it often claims, recognize the division between town and country. It actually produces or constitutes the division between town and country. It is that kind of philosophical, political claim that these are two very different kinds of things, and there are good reasons to keep them apart. That's the bit that I think is 
is is really dubious. Um, and I think that's where you see people like Nicholas Boy Smith starting to kind of pick at the edges of that. I think you know, quite rightly. Yeah, and that's, we sort of zoom in on that quote. Obviously, your book looks into the, the future of urban life. And Nicholas Boyce Smith is saying, you know, this whole Greenbelt scenario shows us that we have, quote, fallen out of love with the future as a society, right? So is, is it effectively saying that Greenbelt development should be the future of what's happening in cities around the country? The amount of people who benefit from the Greenbelt, a very small amount of people, right? So there's this kind of uh, rhetoric that the Green Belt around London is a resource for people in, in central London that they can get out to and access the country. Absolute nonsense. We have no good evidence that that's how people in London access nature, right? That there's lots of actual spots within London that, that, that people use instead, like the, the great urban parks, of course, most, most obviously. So I, so I think the material interests protecting the Green Belt are super strong, which for me is the reason that it may not be inevitable that this happens, but it certainly should happen. I mean, I think it's hard to see any kind of decent future in general for the UK in which the Green Belt is preserved in the way that it is. I mean, one additional thing I would say is like, we've been having this debate for decades or whether or not one should build on the Green Belt. And it's in many ways like quite a banal question. Of course one should build on the, you know, and I, I, I say this not with, you know, if someone like Nicholas Boyce-Smith, who is not, I, I think I can fairly say, not necessarily a kind of a, a figure associated with kind of avant-garde modernism, right, thinks we should be building on the green belt, then it seems to me so obviously within the mainstream of discourse that it's, it's, it's kind of beyond discussion. I mean, the more important question, the question we're never talking about when we have this conversation is like, not whether or not we're going to build on the green belt, but what is actually going to be built on what is that future of that development actually going to look like right so you know if you're thinking about the future of london i mean what does what does a what does a london look like in which spatial inequality is taken seriously what does a london look like when there's some serious sense of housing justice what does it look like in which you know make people have the option to stay in the communities that they grow up in all those sorts of questions are not getting asked while we kind of think about should we or should we not let you know lend lease or whoever build a load of houses on the green belt right so i would really i mean i don't mean this is not critical of humor this is the wider discourse that was the wider discourse would move from the kind of the whether to the what right the kind of like not this kind of banal conversation about whether or not we should build on this actually just uninteresting agricultural space mostly and um, but what kind of development is 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 going to appear there and if people are serious if 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 the claim that what we're trying to avoid is urban sprawl is if that's a good faith claim, which by which I mean, you know, low density, relatively unrestrained uh, development, then great. Let's think about density. Let's think about something seriously planned. Let's think about massive um, public transport initiatives, all those sorts of things. Great. Um, but that for me is the discussion that needs to happen. Now, Boy Smith uh, makes the point that new developments would face much less local opposition if they adhered to a certain traditional aesthetic. Now, it's not really surprising because you know, his, his lobbying work is all around this. Um, now, interestingly, the, the Labour Party, on, on the other side of the political spectrum, they seem to agree with this. Um, so Keir Starmer recently promised that a future Labour government would deliver new towns based on new standard designs. Um, journalists at the time were advised the party would be keen to see more Georgian-style townhouses. Des, uh, what what do you make of this this aesthetic uh, argument that it would be easier to build this stuff if it just looked pretty and Georgian? I mean, you're in Cork right now. It's famously got a lot of beautiful Georgian architecture. Um, could traditional architecture be the actual definition of the future um, of our towns and cities? I, I mean, I was particularly struck by Keir Starmer's recent intervention that new towns would be in Georgian style, which is very odd sort of a claim. There's no obvious reason why he would say that. And it struck me that the only the only rational way to think about that claim, which is otherwise completely bizarre, is to think of it as a kind of implicit 
distancing from the last generation of new talents, which I think is really what Starmer is doing there. And I guess my general worry and the worry of my book more generally is that that kind of objection to mid 20th century architecture isn't really an aesthetic objection. It's a social objection, right? So it's not, it's not the kind of tower block as a physical form that, say, Starmer is distancing himself from. It's public housing as a political project. I think that's what's kind of carrying on under this discourse. And that's my kind of larger um, disagreement with, with, I guess, Create Streets and, and, and people in that line of thinking. And we should remind ourselves that this isn't new, right? I mean, uh, someone like Roger Scruton, uh, who, of course, co-chaired the... Um, Oh, the, the Building Beautiful, Building Better, I can't the exact name, Commission, co-chaired that with Nicholas Boy-Smith. I mean, Roger Scruton, I think, is a much different kind of figure. His claim is that modern architecture is immoral, basically, that it produces bad people and bad societies, and that the kind of previous social and physical form is something we should value and want to return to. It's a much more explicitly political argument, I think, and, and worth thinking with on that basis. I mean, for, for someone like Roger Scruton, like, older like different kinds of architecture produce different kinds of people and older kinds of architecture and he doesn't say this explicitly this is my reading i think essentially produces more subservient kind of people right um yeah you don't get that argument today people don't say that traditional architecture is more moral they say that people prefer it that it's better for our well-being and so on but still that kind of legacy is very much there so I do, I guess I have a worry about this kind of performative distinction from the social experiments of the mid 20th century, right? And the kind of aping of the physical form of, you know, what we should remind ourselves is actually a vastly unequal, lawless and vicious age, right? People have some kind of Bridgerton fantasy about the early 19th century. This is not what life was like for most people, right? I mean, it's an era when the rich rule like petty kings over, over most people's lives. So the return to the physical form of that society seems to me troubling if we really want to avoid, I want to avoid the social form. That it, that it held together. Yeah, that's fascinating. So it's always like the references to Georgian architecture in the contemporary space, always like a dog whistle to this um, time before a social state existed, but that politicians seem to be more confident talking about aesthetic styles and mentioning Georgia than they are to say, we're going to build new towns and they're going to be entirely social housing or something like that. It's almost like a way of saying, don't worry, this, this new town won't be social housing or something. But really... <laughs> The discussion we need, the quality of debate we need around this is what will that housing be? Uh, what's your take on that? What what, sh what should they be building regardless of style? So, I mean, I think one of the great tragedies of kind of the last couple of decades in thinking about, you know, urban planning is the general move of public discourse away from the idea that massive, dense social housing is a social good. Right. I think we've learned a lot of bad lessons from what happened in the middle of the 20th century. This didn't make it into my book, but I did a small bit of um, archival research. Um, in the archive of a woman called Margaret Willis. So Margaret Willis was a sociologist in the 1950s, and incredibly, she worked for the then London County Councils. So this is an era when London County Council not only employed its own architects, it employed its own sociologists to go and see what people made of the architecture. And Margaret Willis was someone employed to do that. And so in her archive, you get all these reports of people who moved into kind of you know, that first generation of social housing in the 1950s and early 1960s. And they loved it. You know, it was incredibly liberating. People loved living in tower blocks. They loved being able to the top of a tower block and able to see the kids playing below. And we've completely forgotten the kind of social affordances of that form of living. We're getting to this kind of 1980s kind of Alice Coleman discourse around kind of defensible space, that sense that there's something implicitly problematic about that form of housing and that form of architecture, rather than simply a set of political choices were made to residualize that housing, which is to say to reserve it just for the poorest and most destitute people, and then to neglect it physically, so that it kind of you know, 
uh, it, it did end up like a pretty bad place to live. But none of that is inherent. Um, and for me, we need to relearn that kind of 1950s, 1960s lesson um, rather than kind of constantly regurgitating these kind of you know, early 19th century fantasies. Absolutely spot on, Des. And it's worth mentioning, you know, London is often uh, quite rightly described as like one of the most successful cities in the world, one of the most successful cities in the UK. London also has the most social housing of any city in the UK. They might just be a coincidence. It might just not be a coincidence. Social housing is really good for a city. Yeah, and not just social housing, but also like spatial organisations. I mean, I lived in London for 10 years and I moved to London from, you know, a relatively small place in Ireland. And, you know, the thing that was astonishing to me as an outsider was that like in London that the kind of I know it's the kind of a cliche but that sense that you get kind of rich and poor really cheek by jowl in London it was you know I think people don't appreciate how unusual that is and like what a benefit that is for everybody right that you've kind of social housing like social housing is not as it is in Paris right it's not put at the kind of uh, the very margins of towns with crappy transport connections and the center is preserved for for the wealthy and just left to the market I mean I think that's an incredible boon it makes like it makes London so much of what, what so much of what London is, is great about London is, is 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 dependent on that relationship. And I think it would be an incredible shame if the market was just left to kind of dissipate that. The British Museum has announced a 7,500 metre square redevelopment competition after it signed a contentious £50 million funding deal with fossil fuel giant BP. This was reported in the AJ last week. Challenging architects to reimagine a third of the Bloomsbury Museum's galleries, the contest is part of an ambitious decade-long renovation master plan unveiled late last year, and it's being billed as one of the, quote, most significant cultural redevelopment projects ever undertaken end quote the contest will focus on the museum's western range which currently hosts collections of ancient egyptian greek and roman artifacts key aims include the quote introduction of contemporary architecture and innovative gallery displays alongside sensitivity towards the need to respect and restore the highly significant and celebrated listed buildings on the site end quote the refurbishment of the sir robert smirk designed greek revival style building marks the largest addition to the complex since the Foster and Partners designed giant glass roof over the Great Court completed in the year 2000. The competition is underpinned by the British Museum's highly controversial new 10-year partnership with fossil fuel giant BP, which will provide £50 million over the next decade to help deliver the museum's redevelopment master plan. In recent months, the museum, which is chaired by the former Chancellor George Osborne, has faced growing calls for the return of the Elgin marbles to Greece and became embroiled in a scandal over 2,000 missing antiquities from its collections, uh, something which resulted in the resignation of the museum's director, Hartwig Fisher, last summer. However, the row over its deal with BP may even eclipse these controversies. In recent years, BP and other oil and gas companies have been increasingly shunned by Britain's cultural industries, with the Tate, the National Portrait Gallery and Royal Shakespeare Company among those institutions turning down such sponsorship. When the British Museum announced its partnership with BP late last year, museum trustee Muriel Gray, the former chair of the Macintosh School of Art in Glasgow, she quit, while Doug Parr, who's the UK policy director for Greenpeace, said the deal, quote, must surely be one of the biggest, most brazen greenwashing sponsorship deals the sector has ever seen, end quote. So, Des, uh, British Museum, it was constructed during the early 19th century in this Greek revival style, which was popular at the time. It's had numerous renovations and additions over the years. What is the symbolic power of this building? And what's your take on its latest redevelopment plans? 
Well, I think the symbolic power is, is, is the most important bit. I mean, for me, the, the, the British Museum, the building represents what the institution is, which is an unreconstructed colonial grotesque, right? I mean, it's that, that's what it is, and that's what it's always been. You know, that kind of sense of expanse and grandeur that people like about the British Museum, I mean, that's you know, what's that supposed to convey? It's supposed to convey the sweep of knowledge about the world, which in turn, of course, is supposed to convey this, the sweep of, of the British Empire, kind of ludicrously uh, reconstructing itself as, as the, the inheritor of, of kind of classical Greece. And Rome. So, you know, I'm I'm all for attempts by Norman Foster and others to bring this into modernity. Good for them. But like I think the bigger question is for people to ask seriously about what this kind of sad colonial relic is actually doing in central London, what it's doing in Bloomsbury, and whether or not there might be better uses for that space. It would certainly uh, create an opportunity to fill it with other interesting things, perhaps. Um, because I know obviously in London we don't have a a museum of imperialism. Uh, we don't have a museum of slavery on a, on a headline scale, although there are important exhibitions uh, in the Museum of the London Docklands. There does need to be a museum uh, which which tells, but but though, like you say, it was it was set up to tell a different story or to symbolise uh, something else. Yeah, and I and I, and I think that this this the story with BP. I mean, for me, reveals the kind of hollowness of kind of contemporary attempts to think through that story. But it seems to me these are two pretty bad institutions, actually, the British Museum and former British Petroleum, you know, and in some ways they deserve each other, right? There's, to me, there's something kind of fitting about the coming together of these two pretty dreadful historical formations. Yeah, it's certainly interesting that, you know, that, that for example, Tate, that, for example, Royal Shakespeare Company said no uh, to similar deals, but British Museum, which you've outlined, has controversy already, um, was willing to step up and... Uh, is, is, is that a kind of to toxic mix, like a, do a double whammy? And as you said in your introduction, Vernon, this is not new, right? They've, I mean, they've had resignations from the Board of Trustees going back years now, and specifically over the relationship with BP, right? So it's not as if this is some kind of issue that's kind of caught them unawares, right? You have to understand, I think it's impossible not to understand what they're doing now. It's a very deliberate policy choice and a very deliberate kind of imagination of what that organization should be in the future. And I think, you know, the public should read it in that vein, I think quite straight, quite squarely. But but these decisions are being made in a context where cultural institutions around the world have found themselves being the focus of, for example, just stop oil protests, also other protests uh, around uh, the climate change and the way the sector has been sort of enmeshed in in some of these sponsorship deals. Um, what kind of impact have the have these protests had on on places like this? I mean, for example, when a protest has often often it's it's not so easy for people to get in and access the, that culture in the first place. So it seems to sort of um, be quite a big risk for an organisation to put itself in a place where protests like this are happening. Um, what could be the potential impact for institutions such as the British Museum? Like most people, when this form of protest first emerged, I just kind of found it annoying and alienating. Right? Like, what are they? You know, this seems like it's not doing anything for anybody. Um, but as they've accumulated, I think I've started to see a certain kind of interesting symbolic power to them, right? Because, of course, you know, they're not trying to persuade anyone, I think, right? These kind of protests, like these, you know, especially these museum-based protests where people throw paint on, of course, on glass covering works, they're not attempting to persuade anyone. I think they're trying to register the kind of horror of the world we live in and the world we're heading into, right? It's that kind of a stop on, on, on everyday normal life. And to kind of reveal what is just below the surface, which is a kind of, you know, um, uh, undeniably collapsing ecosystem. So there's something kind of powerful and brave about that, I think, even if it's not, you know, uh, persuading anyone. I mean, 
you know, I, I spent like, like a lot of us, I spent too much time watching kind of weird videos on the internet. And there's this whole genre of video of kind of enraged motorists dragging protesters off, mm-hmm. off, off roads, right? And, then, and they're, they're kind of disturbing to watch in many ways, but there's also, I think, just something really potent about that. Like, like rage is the appropriate emotion for our moment, I think, right? If, and if someone is made to feel rage, maybe that's politically important or kind of, you know, useful political work in a certain kind of way. Almost one in five local councils in England are at risk of bankruptcy, according to the Local Government Association, that's the LGA. This comes after a decade of real terms cuts from government grants and was reported in the Financial Times. Since 2021, six local authorities have been declared bankrupt. Um, And the LGA has warned this figure is likely to increase dramatically as a fifth of all British councils caution they're likely to declare de facto bankruptcy within the next two-year period. Council services continue to face steep cuts after a lack of funding in the autumn statement. At the same time, the demand for statutory services, and obviously that includes children's social care, the provision of temporary accommodation, homelessness support, these all continue to increase. According to reports in the New Statesman, government grant funding for councils fell by 40% in real terms between 2009-2010 and 2019-2020. So that's over a decade, uh, there's been a 40% cut. That has left councils more dependent on locally generated funding, such as through council tax and business rates. On top of this, an LGA survey found almost half of the country's 317 local authorities feared they wouldn't have enough money to deliver essential services in the 24-25 financial year, and more than 60 claimed they're at risk of issuing Section 114 notices, signalling their inability to fulfil a legal duty to balance the books. The LGA's chair, Sean Davis, said, quote, While councils have worked hard to reduce costs, find efficiencies and transform services, the easy savings have long since gone, end quote. Even before the Chancellor's autumn statement, which failed to provide any additional funding for local authorities, the LGA warned that councils face a total funding gap of £4 billion in the next two years. Uh, In London alone, the funding deficit sits at £525 million, a value which is equivalent to £16 million per council. So, Des, the statistics which have been published by the LGA are quite shocking about this looming scale of crisis facing local authorities up and down the country. Um, have we ended up in this point where one in five councils are facing bankruptcy? I mean, we've got here through very deliberate political choice is, is the short answer. So I, I should probably declare a short interest here, which I actually used to work in local government. So when I, I started, I did my PhD in London and when I started it, I had no funding for the first couple of years. So I had to get a job and I randomly got a job in a in a county council that I will not name, not a million miles from London. And that was around kind of 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, so it was at the time when the coalition government came into power. And you know, I have a very strong memory um, in that council of you know the first sign that things were radically changing was when the Building Schools of the Future program ended more or less overnight. So people may or may not remember, Building Schools of the Future was a really ambitious capital investment program um, for transforming kind of physical structure of, of mostly secondary schools, I think, around the UK. It was part it was a Labour government initiative around, I don't know, 2007, I'm going to say. And Michael Gove came in as Education Secretary and it stopped more or less overnight. And that was just a real kind of you know, early warning of where the future was going, you know, in a whole bunch of ways, but especially for, for local authorities. I, you know, I think since then, what we've seen is, is I, I shouldn't, there's a really nice 
uh, article by Tom Crew, the novelist, actually, who wrote a really long article in the London Review of Books a couple of years ago on kind of the death of municipal Britain that is really worth people's time. And he describes what we've, what we've seen is basically a kind of unmaking of the state, right? If, if you kind of remember that a huge amount of what we think of as the state in the UK is actually municipal, it's come up from those kind of more local formations rather than top down, that the stealth um, doing away of those uh, provisions has really been a stealth unmaking of the state itself. And it's been a very deliberate policy choice, right? So councils haven't got here through mismanagement, through bad use of funds, through the kind of usual bugbears about, you know, diversity czars or whatever (laughs) that's that's a total nonsense it's not that it's a very deliberate policy choice in which councils have been starved of income and especially now in a period of of high inflation it's a completely unsustainable situation that is not not in their hands and i should say again i'll declare an interest in this um they're not the only public institution in this like the university sector in britain is going to face exactly the same crisis in the next 12 months or so and one of the reasons i'm coming to you from ireland one of the reasons i don't work in the uk anymore is because that crisis was very visibly coming around the corner and will hit very soon in the same way you'll see universities declaring some kind of bankruptcy or unable to meet their bills for exactly the same reason they've been starved of income at a period of high inflation. So these are deliberate policy choices by a series of governments at this point. And I guess when these sort of policy choices and funding uh, shortfalls are announced, obviously it's difficult for people to to understand what that means for them in, in real life, right? But um, if we're looking now, Nottingham City Council um, it's got a £50 million budget gap for 24-25. Uh, in attempt to balance the books, it's proposed cuts to youth services, care homes, public libraries, all of which um, could lead to a loss of 500 jobs. And also, you know, I mean, Des, potentially, is this a story we're going to see increasingly across other local authorities, uh, given what LGA is warning? Um, and what, what would this actually, what, what could this look like, this shutting down of these places? And even further, their potential selling off uh, as public assets? Yeah, I think what makes the situation even more difficult is I think people don't always appreciate that so much of uh, local authority budgets go to things that are statutory, things they have to provide. So things like adults, so a huge percentage of any local authority's budget is going to be adult social care, which has to be provided by statute. They've no option to not do that. So if you think that like, I don't know what it is, let's say 70, 80% of the budget basically can't be touched, right? Because it's for statutory provision for adult social care. Then the rest is just going to get absolutely destroyed, right? And the rest is stuff like cultural stuff, youth services, libraries, that kind of thing. So that's why you constantly see um, uh, uh, libraries as the kind of source of these tensions. It's one of the few things that councils can actually do anything about. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've always found it a source of like kind of irritation, I guess, that like people think that, Councils are cutting cultural services or libraries or youth services because, like, you know, they're Philistines or they're just not interested in those things or they think libraries are bad. It's not. It's because they have no choice, right? They have their budget is such that they can't touch a huge portion of the budget. This is all they can touch. That's what they have to do. So I think people will really see it in those kind of services, culture, youth, arts, those kind of, which, which, which can be cut, basically. And things that, as opposed to things that can't. And I think what we'll also see is, um, and this has been in the news recently, that the selling off of assets and the selling off of assets, of course, is not, you know, a kind of a neutral activity. The selling off of assets would be the transfer, a wealth transfer, really, um, from public to private. It'll just be a privatization of what are currently, you know, um, uh, publicly funded and provided services. So it's just going to be a huge transfer of resources and a huge transfer of wealth. Again, I, I would say that this is a policy choice. It's not something that's happening inevitably or naturally. An anti-war artwork by Banksy was stolen from Peckham less than an hour after it was confirmed to be a genuine installation. This was reported in The Guardian. 
the piece, which is a traffic stop sign adorned with three military drones, was confirmed to be Banksy's in a social media post shortly after midday on the Friday when it was installed. A video widely shared on social media depicts two men removing the sign from the intersection of Southampton Way and Commercial Way in Peckham at about 12.30pm. Jasmine Ali, who's the deputy leader of Southwark Council, expressed her disappointment with the theft, saying, quote, We'd like it back so everyone in the community can enjoy Banksy's brilliant work, end quote. The local authority hopes the artwork will be recovered, as it's not the first time a Banksy has been stolen, or the perpetrators detained. Last year, three men were imprisoned after Sad Girl, the street artist's homage to the victims of the 2015 terrorist attacks in Paris, was stolen from the door of the Bataclan music venue. In another incident, six months later, eight people were arrested over the theft of a Banksy mural in Kyiv. Some pieces are even stolen more than once. Uh, In 2019, a man who removed a statue of Banksy's from central London contacted police when he discovered the piece had been stolen from him and then put in uh, up for auction at Sotheby's. It later emerged that either Banksy or his associates was responsible for recovering that particular piece. Okay, so Des, uh, what do you make of Banksy's work? Are you a fan or do you think it's a bit of overhype? And what do you make of this latest story? I cannot stand Banksy. <laughs> I should just say that. I cannot stand Banksy. Um, aesthetically or politically, I think it's just clunky social commentary attached to a kind of a tired aesthetic. Um, you know, when I, I used to live in Bristol, um, in the south of Bristol, in Bedminster, and actually during the pandemic, while we were living there, a, a new Banksy appeared on the side of a house in Totterdown, which is kind of the next neighbourhood over, for people who know the geography. Uh, it was called Achoo. It was a woman sneezing. Uh, she, you know, classic Banksy. <laughs> what a subtle commentary on the pandemic. <laughs> um, uh, and so, of course, my wife and I went up to see it. Well, I took our photo in front of it, of course. Um, and then the next day, it was covered in a big plastic thing. And then two days later, a crane came and took the bit all away. And where that is now, I have no idea. Um, so this is a kind of a, a not a new pattern with with, with Banksy. Um, I don't know, I don't have a lot of time for this. I mean, I think uh, uh, this kind of pose of this kind of anti-establishment figure who's nonetheless um, deeply embedded in the international art market is kind of insufferable to me. You know, he's, he's making commodities that are worth millions, which he knows perfectly. I say he, who knows, which they know perfectly well. And I do think, like, to be serious about the kind of incident in Peckham, I actually used to live in Peckham as well, so I know that area quite well. Um, I do think there's kind of like an ethical issue of actually dropping a commodity that is actually worth a significant amount of money in a community where a lot of marginalized people are living and in which that, you know, that might present some kind of you know, temptation or a challenge or something like that. You know, I think there's been a lot of focus on this, this the, the, the chap who, who took the took the artwork, but I think, you know, a serious ethical question about what it means to just dump these things in, in places like Peckham or totter down in South Bristol, I think need to be asked. I, I personally don't have any time for it. Yeah, it's interesting for an artist with uh, economic power, um, if you're going to make a sort of social, sorry, for an artist that makes social statements, but with real economic power, there's probably something else they could do to help people in Beckham, uh, like giving them some money for, for a community project. Um, the uh, somewhat interesting timing as well, putting it down there in what's sometimes called the silly season, the holidays when there's no other news. So definitely going to get a lot of coverage and something that was a local story then quickly becomes a national if not international story um i I mean the people commenting at the time asking are the people stealing the artwork part of the art piece uh so it's it's a perfectly reasonable question and a kind of a plausible suggestion i think you know 
the art piece is not just the art piece, right? The kind of the spectacle is the art piece, right? That's, I mean, as you said, I mean, the person who does it at exactly this point in the news calendar knows precisely what they're doing. They're producing spectacle. And, you know, I suspect enrolling kind of innocent bystanders in that spectacle, whether they want to be enrolled in it or not. And then what about what it says about public art more generally, uh, the importance it plays in cities? Because uh, public art does get stolen and it does get uh, reappropriated or local authorities simply say, we cannot look after this expensive piece because we're too worried that someone's going to nick it one day. Um, I mean, I guess it comes back to what we were saying earlier in the show, but um, it is a, yeah, it, is a, it does bring a lot of joy to a lot of people and a lot of civic pride uh, if you live in you know, a very normal neighbourhood to think, yeah, there's that beautiful sculpture by that artist and that you know i see it whenever i go for a walk in the park or wherever you go yeah i mean it's like you know barbara hepworth's kind of dotted all over kind of slightly random bits of britain which are beautiful and fabulous and also i think probably a big source of anxiety for whatever poor local authority is responsible for them um i mean obviously i think yeah, public art of course has a, has a huge role in in, in in urban futures i mean I, I i'm personally more attracted to not so much kind of public art as like spectacle or public art as kind of you know the kind of barbara hepworth, hepworth banksy kind of genius artist makes the object and the public's role is to come along and admire the object which is fine but you know we can also think about you know public art as something much more participatory something that's much more that kind of people can get involved in in communities um, and something that can be produced outside of like the fairly narrow confines of the heritage industry right? which is often unfortunately what you're you know you're kind of barbara hepworths are enrolled into that's you know it becomes this kind of you know fairly conventional heritage object that people kind of tramp along and, and see which is fine it's not, that's not bad in itself but we can think more creatively i think about what public art can look like in cities and what it can do in cities right i mean you know for anyone who's been to like a city like belfast right i mean that that's a very different vision of what public art is for you know what it can achieve it's not a well it's, it's kind of about heritage now i guess but certainly when when a lot of those murals were painted they were not about heritage they were about a very different kind of imagination of of the role of of, of art in a, in a challenging urban space and um, so i think something to learn from that kind of experience of a kind of participation community moving away from the heritage industry and moving away from the kind of single genius artist as the kind of locus of, of, of this kind of activity. Okay, we're now going to move on to the culture section and we're going to be discussing Des Fitzgerald's new book. So this is called The City of Today is a Dying Thing in Search of the Cities of Tomorrow. It comes out on the 18th of January, but it's also available to pre-order now. So Des, can you tell listeners a bit about the book? Um, what's it all about? What will people expect to find in your book? Thanks, Merlin. I mean, so where the book begins is in, is in a question about mental health and about urban mental health. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm a sociologist by training. My actual interest is in psychology and in kind of histories of mental health. And that's how I got to thinking about cities, planning and architecture. Because we've had this longstanding uh issue since kind of the mid-19th century we've kind of known that there's something about the relationship between urban life and mental health that's problematic right so you know in the very early eras of the asylum movement when they first started kind of taking people who we would now call mentally ill or what we're called the you know, lunatics at the time gathering them together in specific places and could do some kind of demographic research on them this is the kind of mid-19th century really the first thing that people discover, the kind of original finding of, of, of kind of psychiatric epidemiology is that there's some kind of relationship between mental health and urbanization. That people who were born in cities, grew up in cities, moved to cities, have much more likelihood of developing serious mental illness. So we've known that since the 19th century, it's, it's held up you know, through the decades and we still don't know why. That, 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 thinking about that question is where I come in. And then for the present book, it's it's kind of based on a kind of a realization that uh, I came across while thinking about this, which is that 
for a long time, we don't know what caused this problem or what solves it. But today, there's an increasing sense that we do know what the issue is, or we do know what can resolve this issue. And that's nature. That's green stuff. That actually what's causing kind of people's mental health problems in urban space, what makes urban spaces often difficult to be in, is the absence of nature. And so if we festoon the cities with nature, if we kind of plant trees everywhere, put kind of green roofs and everything, living walls all over the place, that will have this kind of transformative effect on the well, mental well-being of people in cities. So I just, I mean, that was, that was interesting to me because that's obviously not true. <laughs> if you're interested in urban mental health, this is definitely not the solution. But, you know, that then that, that becomes kind of sociologically interesting. So why are we convinced, right? So why, how do we manage to convince ourselves that the future of the city has to be green right? is, is the question that I try to answer in the book. And like, there's no simple or obvious answer to it to potentially disappoint people, right? It's partly a question, it's partly a discussion about science, it's partly a discussion about governance, it's partly about architectural trends. But I guess one thing that I think I talk about a lot in the book, and this is the real kind of over, overwhelming argument, is that there's something about the symbolic function of nature and the symbolic function of green space that it's worth us thinking of it a bit more carefully and a bit more critically than we usually do. I know I think a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of listeners to this podcast, Merlin, will have a sense that there's something about, you know, urban modernity that doesn't quite work, that the city doesn't necessarily function in the way we want it to function, that it creates all sorts of problems, that, they, you know, that there's some kind of transformation in urban life would, would be good. I think you know, from a lot of different directions, people have that sense. But I think in, for some people, rather than that leading to some kind of, you know, political program of transformation, thinking about what the future of the city might look like, how we might improve the city, all those sorts of things... For some people, it, it, it leads backwards. That kind of sense that the city's not working leads to a kind of an, a nostalgia for something pre-modern and pre-urban, to a form of social organization that we knew before the city. And so you get a lot of this kind of sense of how can we return to something older? How can we return to something that kind of uh, uh, before the 20th century? And that's you know, we had that earlier discussion about Georgian architecture. That's kind of where that comes in, that sense of like, maybe life was better before the modern city. I think that's what's undergirding a lot of this discussion about urban nature. And that for me is really problematic. And, and that's really thinking through that as a problematic is really what the book is about. That's absolutely fascinating. I mean, what a surprise that humans want pretty solutions to complex problems. Um, but in your work, did you come across, for example, a city where there is very good mental health levels, but it isn't particularly green? And is there, can, what are those other things that make, that give us well being aside from greenness? I mean, I'm going to give you a really boring answer. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of the answer, you know. So I should say it's it's not that green space has no relationship to mental health, right? So there's there's reasonably good research done that shows that you know there's some kind of uh, effect that being in nature has on well-being for at least some people, right? That's the effect might not be huge, it might not be for everybody, it might not be where you'd start, but the effect is real enough, right? So I, I don't want to dismiss that out of hand. I think that's the effect is real enough. But for me, if you really, if you, if you want to take seriously the question of urban mental health, and I take it very seriously, if you really want to think about what does good well-being look like for people in a city like London or Newcastle or Liverpool, you would not start with trees, right? That is just not the place to start. You would start again boringly with housing, right? You would start with housing tenure. You would start with um, uh, a secure employment. You would start with things like visible inequality. We know there's a strong relationship between visible inequality and people's well-being, that kind of sense of social defeat that has emerged when you kind of have a sense that you live, you're kind of living poorly in comparison to your peers. All those sorts of kind of boring social interventions that we know perfectly well, and we know perfectly well how to resolve, by the way, 
um, or where you'd start. So my big worry about the kind of emphasis on green space and nature is not that it's useless, it's that it's getting in the way of actually much bigger and more obvious solutions that people don't want to think about for quite obvious reasons because they're expensive and they're dull and they mean kind of big social transformations that, you know, um, are challenging in, in various sorts of ways. So that's, that's my major objective, the kind of opportunity cost of this constant emphasis on nature, which has a relatively small effect compared to like, yeah, building massive amounts of social housing. That, that's what you do if you took the question of urban mental health really seriously. Yeah, so it's, it's too complicated to come up with an employment and social system that includes, say, for example, neurodiverse people. Let's just plant some trees instead. What does is, what is a good city look like for neurodiverse people is a good question to ask, and I don't have a good answer to it. Um, but it definitely is not reducible to trees and green space. It is, it is kind of social and it's longitudinal, right? It's going to take a long time to kind of produce social forms that, that make the city much more livable um, for di many different kinds of people. And, uh, and obviously one can have both. So you can have the green stuff as well. That's, you know, it, so in an ideal world, it's not one or the other, it's, it's both. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Reluctantly, I would say yes. You, you, can have, you can have the trees if you want them. They're not, they're not hurting anything, at least. We can say that. And what was it like writing the book? Uh, you know, where did, where did this come from? How many years did it take? Um, and was there a kind of fun um, revelation moment or anecdote that you experienced or captured in it? It was, it was a lot of fun writing the book. So, I mean, you know, I do normal, my kind of day job is kind of like really boring sociological work. So to have the opportunity to write a book that's in a different mode, where I do kind of, you know, kind of go on a journey to use the kind of cliche of this kind of writing, I guess. But, you know, it was an opportunity to go to places like Poundbury, which I hadn't been to before and spent some time there. In the book, I take my dad to Poundbury, which is kind of, my dad's a very socially awkward person. And taking him to kind of, you know, the, the home of the Prince of Wales is, was, was kind of psychologically tricky for all of us. And I maybe the, the most kind of potent thing I did during the book was I spent some time with Sheffield tree protesters. So one of the things I really wanted to do while writing the book was to, was to spend time with people who disagreed with me, right? So people who kind of thought actually urban trees are really important and who I might kind of find a bit more sympathetic than let's say um, uh, the now King Charles. So I spent some time with um, the kind of former tree protesters in Sheffield. People may remember that huge controversy around the felling of thousands of trees in Sheffield very unpleasant action by the council and by the police, which has since been heavily criticized by an independent report. So I did a little bit of a tour with some of the protesters and kind of their feelings about the city and really the sense of how psychologically transformative that kind of that moment was that, you know, it made me realize like, you know, actually trees are doing a lot of important work for people, but it might be kind of more subtle than kind of, you know, psychological measures might, 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 pick up, right? That there's something about people's relationship to space um, and their sense of security in that space and the sense of ownership over it um, that is intimately entangled with, 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 with kind of green space. So for me, that was a kind of a moment of revelation thinking, okay, the trees do do something good. It might not be what the psychologists think it is, but there is something happening that's worth paying attention to. Okay, so that's The City of Today is a Dying Thing, In Search of the Cities of Tomorrow by Des Fitzgerald. Um, where, should, where should listeners go to get their hands on a copy, especially if they don't want to use Amazon? Uh, the nearest bookstore. I, so I, I've been reassured that there are some many copies available in, in, in Waterstones. So Waterstones should be available or bookshop.org, of course, is always a good option if you want to avoid the, the Amazon giant. Um, the local independent bookstore should have it. And the, you can pre-order, so you get in touch with your bookstore and say, I'd like a copy. Please pre-order. I would be thrilled and delighted and eternally grateful to everyone who pre-orders. Thank you, Des. We're eternally grateful for you being on the show this week. It's been a real great pleasure. And where shall our listeners go to stay up to speed on your writing? Obviously, along with the book, is there, is there socials or a website or something? They can find me on Twitter. I'm at Des underscore Fitzgerald or, or, or X as we call it now for now at least. 
that's where my all my self-promotional activities <laughs> will take place fantastic thank you so much and uh hopefully feature you on the show again one day be my pleasure thanks so much Brennan. it's been a real it's been a real enjoying conversation You've been listening to The Brief from Open City, made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. This show is made possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. <laughs>